Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the 11th episode of The Theory of Enchantment. I am your host, Chloe Valdry. I am so, so sorry it took me such a long time to get back to the next episode of The Theory of Enchantment. I took a bit of a hiatus. I was working on some things, but I'm super happy to be back finally. Um, Now, we're going to actually start to do things a little differently. In the past, I actually had a lot of guests on. Our last guest was Arnold Michaelis, who was awesome. I hope you guys enjoyed that particular interview. But moving forward, I'm actually going to be speaking more on this podcast myself about the theory of enchantment, what it is, how it affects and can affect our society at large, what I'm really trying to attempt to do with the theory, and also, I'll be talking about some interesting topics that are sort of pressing in the day and like we're all talking about sort of in the space of pop culture and health and wellness. Because that's really what Theory of Enchantment aims to be a curriculum focused on and a vehicle focused toward. This conversation that's happening in society right now about health and wellness, about how we can use health and wellness to totally change the way we think about doing things, whether it's business, whether it's uh, sports, all of those various things. So welcome to the 11th episode of The Theory of Enchantment, and welcome to a brand new way of doing things. I hope you enjoy. All right, now I'm going to give you the backstory of Theory of Enchantment because I realize that some of you don't know where it comes from. So Theory of Enchantment originally comes from an idea I had back in the day when I had just graduated from college from the University of New Orleans. I moved from New Orleans to New York. I had a job at the Wall Street Journal. Brett Stevens was my mentor and I was working on a massive 82 page paper that was essentially about how to combat hatred and specifically a certain form of hatred, anti-Semitism. Those of you who know me know I have a background in combating anti-Semitism. That is really what I was doing and what I was involved in prior to founding and creating the theory of enchantment. But in the middle of doing this research paper, I discovered that I was asking the wrong question. I was asking, how do we combat anti-Semitism? Or broadly speaking, how do we combat hatred? Instead of asking, how do we actually teach people how to love? Through the course of this 82-page thesis paper that I was working on, I discovered that there was a difference between these two questions. These are not the same questions. And increasingly, I found in society that we have developed a vocabulary, a, a whole host of words and a lexicon for combating hatred. We have these things like call-out culture. We have campaigns which like, you know, we have campaigns like meet the Me Too movement, right? We have campaigns like Time Up, Time's Up, which are all important campaigns in shining a light on injustices that have happened, whether you're talking about gender, whether you're talking about gender injustice, whether you're talking about racial injustice. All of these things are important in moving the culture forward. However, what we have failed to do as a society and as a culture is produce a lexicon and vocabulary of how to teach people how to love, which is a social skill, and it is a skill set that no one is born with. It is a skill set that requires practice day in and day out, and it is a skill set that requires that our entire selves be present in the moment as we interact with our fellow human beings. 
So that's where the theory of enchantment comes from. And the theory of enchantment has three principles. Number one, remember that we are human beings, not political abstractions. Number two, if you want to criticize, criticize to uplift and empower, never to tear down, never to destroy. And number three, root everything you do in love and compassion. Now, if you think about these three principles, they actually, each principle contains the seeds of the other two principles. I'll take the first one, for example. Remember that we are human beings and not political abstractions. Now, this may seem like common sense, right? You're going about your day. Of course, you're a human being. You're not an, you're not a plant, right? You're not like a solar system. Uh, you know, you're not like a rock or something. Of course, you're a human being. That's common sense, Chloe. Like, why are you bringing this up? Well, believe it or not, I'm sure you've heard of the saying, common sense isn't so common. Yes, we're human beings, but we actually forget this, especially when we get involved in conflict with other people, whether it's in real life or on social media. In real life, when we get in conflict with other people, whether it's of a verbal dispute or of worse, of a physical nature. We become affected by fear. Often we want to protect ourselves, we want to protect our property, we want to protect the people around us who we may feel are under threat by other people who are being aggressive toward us. And what happens in that moment is that we then begin to understand incorrectly or misperceive the person in front of us, not as a person, not as a human being, but actually as an abstraction, or which is to say as an object of our imagination, as something that can be pigeonholed into a stereotype that we can just dismiss as a threat. We do not take into account the fullness of the person's humanity standing across from us. And this becomes a problem because this fear that we have oftentimes leads to the wrong action being taken on our part which then places fear in that person and that person begins to see us as an object as a stereotype as something that can be pigeonholed into a box and then they respond in the same way and the cycle repeats itself all because we are number one afraid and that fear then informs how we see the other now what does it actually mean to know that we are human beings not abstractions well what does it mean to be a human being to be a human being means that you are beset by the human condition it means that you are full number one of imperfection perfection is a non-reality it does not exist you are full of imperfections that's what it really means to be a human being so because you're full of imperfections it also means that you're full of insecurities everyone has insecurities because of their imperfections because on an individual level and on a societal level we find it very difficult to deal with our imperfections and to deal with the fact of our imperfections right so number one we are imperfect number two we have insecurities we have vulnerabilities which is to say we have all these fears and a lot of these fears stems from feeling of the f- this, uh, for example, the feeling that we will be insignificant, the feeling that others will abandon us, the feeling that others will reject us, the feelings that others will not praise us, the feelings that we do not have worth, right? And all of this stems from the fact of our mortality, like we're going to die one day, right? So we have all these things and we are beset by all these things as part of the human condition. We wrestle with these feelings of 
uh, worthiness or lack of worthiness. We wrestle with the feeling of imperfection and we have to figure out how to deal with our mortality. We wrestle with feelings of insecurities. We don't want to allow ourselves to be vulnerable in certain spaces because it, it comes with the risk of not being accepted. It comes with the risk of being rejected, right? So as a human being, we have all of these complexities. Um, as a human being, we're also not one thing, right? We're we are multitudes. We contain multitudes in terms of the types of things we like, the types of things we gravitate toward, the types of interests we have. There is no stereotypical human being. The only stereotypical human being that exists is the complex human being, right? Now, with the awareness of the self, with the awareness that this is what it means to be, let's say, me, Chloe Valdery, or this is what it means to be you, the listener to this podcast and to this episode. Once you actually understand that this is what it means to be a human being, to be complex, to be riddled with paradox, right? To have to deal and navigate with all these insecurities and imperfections and hopes and dreams and aspirations and feelings of inadequacy and great uh, visions of, of worthiness, you can begin to deal with the fact, once you internalize this, you can begin to deal with the fact that every single human being that you meet is dealing with those same complexities. And now, once you are forced to confront someone who you feel is a threat, you can be, begin to rewire your brain to think beyond the surface. Because while it may seem that someone in front of you is acting in a very aggressive way towards you, what's happening internally is that that person is experiencing a fear of you. For whatever reason, the person doesn't know you, the person is assuming things about you, whatever. But behind the surface level of aggression oftentimes is fear and behind that fear are all those complexities that I just talked about so internalizing the first principle of the theory of enchantment gets you to be able to start to see the world not based upon its outward manifestations but its inward dynamics that are producing the outward manifestations and once you be once you are able to identify those things you can actually learn how to respond properly also by managing your internal dynamics and your internal emotions so that's just an example of how we sort of can be aggressive and be informed by fear in person but i didn't even begin to talk about social media right with social media we don't even see the person it's it's even more primed for us to begin to think of each other as objects uh as as flattened reduced stereotypes as text on a screen we cannot it is literally impossible to contend with the fullness of a person's humanity on social media because you can't see that person you can't take in that person and so you are simply dealing with text on a screen and i have been guilty of this when i get into arguments sometimes with people i forget that i'm dealing with human beings whose opinions whether i agree with them or not whether they're political, social, whatever, whose opinions are informed by their lived experiences, whose opinions are informed by the baggage, the vulnerability, the insecurities, and all of these dynamics that they bring to the table of the conversation, right? And so the theory of enchantment is meant as a tool and uh, to reorient and re, uh, what's, 
what is, what's the word? Reimagine the way we understand reality, because reality is not what's happening on the surface. Reality is not what's happening in the immediacy of the conversation. Oftentimes, reality is what's happening in and behind what's not being said. Reality is happening sometimes behind what is informing what is being said, right? So that just speaks to the importance of the first principle because, again, it may seem like it's common sense. It may seem super obvious, but it's actually not that obvious at all. We as human beings tend to see things only and imagine things only on the surface, and we tend to not go beyond that. And it's important to begin to reimagine a society where we can understand the internal dynamics and to train ourselves to detect the internal dynamics of what's going on in our everyday life and the way we communicate with each other. So the theory of enchantment, the, the other part that I wanted to tell you about the research that I discovered was that like, okay, I wanted to ask this question, how do you get people to love one another? Because love is a social skill, it requires practice, like I said earlier, but how do you actually get people to learn how to do that? And like for me, I started asking myself, well, if I want to ask, if I want to figure out how do people, how, how can I make people love how can I get people to learn how to love? Then I have to ask myself, well, what are we already in love with as a culture? What are those existing structures structures within society that create love and affinity? And for me, the immediate answer was pop culture. Because pop culture, the way I understand pop culture is not just like in a strictly like capitalist structure, meaning you have a company like Nike and Nike sells shoes to millions of people. And obviously it's, its objective is to sell as many shoes to as many people so make their bottom line super big, right? That's the superficial, simple model of understanding Nike. But I understand Nike as a story, right? Nike is a company that tells a story, that is selling a story to its consumers. And the story that it's telling its consumers is that if you buy this shoe, if you wear this swoosh sign, uh, if you wear this, you know, t-shirt with the Air Jordan, right, insignia on it, essentially you will be able to believe that you can do anything, right? It's not that you will be able to do anything. That may come, right? But that is actually a function of the belief that you have. Whether you believe it or whether you don't believe it, that is what it is, right? And so Nike is selling us this idea that we have potential. It's not selling us the idea that we will necessarily and inevitably fulfill our potential. It's selling us the idea that we have potential. And the idea is that if we put on this cap if we put on the shoe we can certainly we are more likely to be able to work our way into achieving that potential and so that's a very powerful thing to me that's like an anthropological thing that's happening with a company like nike because that means that nike is selling us a story in the mythological sense of the word right in the joseph campbell sense of the word these huge archetypes that make up the way we define our existence right and it turns out that Nike isn't the only story that we love, 
right? There are other stories represented by companies, represented by influencers, represented by celebrities that we love. And so what I did was I studied a lot of these things. What are the stories that are producing mass consumption? What are the stories that are producing this this sort of trend where we latch onto it and we love it, essentially? We have such affinity by it as measured by the amount of dollars that we invest in it, right? And so... I started looking into companies like Nike, and what that means is I started looking into the ads that they produce, the types of stories they tell. I started looking into influencers like Beyonce. Beyonce has, you know, her fans have mad love for her, right? Like on a on a religious, theological level, right? That means there's something embedded in the stories that Beyonce is producing that produces love within us for her, right? So how can we learn more about that? How can I learn more about the psychology behind that and use it to actually teach people how to love on their everyday journey? Uh, So that was sort of the idea. And what I discovered across all of these companies and all these influencers and all of these stories that make up pop culture, mass culture, was that they were telling a very simple story. They were simply creating content in which the audience could see themselves and their potential reflected in the content. They saw themselves and their potential reflected in the content. So, like, again, when... Michael Jordan did this beautiful ad that I actually teach as a part of the theory of enchantment curriculum. Uh, Michael Jordan did this beautiful ad. Um, I re- don't remember when it aired. I think it aired like during All-Star Weekend for like in early 2000s. Um, and the name of this ad is called When You Look Me in the Eyes. And it's a beautiful, beautiful ad. I've studied this ad probably hundreds of times now. Um, but he says something incredible. He's taking, he's He's telling it from the perspective of of one person and simultaneously every person, which is sort of the magic and art of great storytelling, right? It's that you can see the universal in the story of the particular individual person. So he's basically telling the story from the perspective of one boy, one girl, one kid who wants to accomplish something, right? And he basically says, look me in the eyes. I know that you're scared. You're scared of what I could become. I'm scared of what I won't become. And if you watch this ad, you see, like, you see on screen, there's a picture of a little boy, there's a picture of a little girl, there's a picture of an athlete, there's a picture of a famous person. This loop, this sort of, like, mindset plays within us all. That's the point. This is the story, right? Um, This idea that, like, as we encounter each other on the street as strangers, knowing nothing about each other, you may see me and for whatever reason, because of something, some baggage or something, some experience that you had, whatever, let's just say hypothetically, you may see me and you may be threatened by my presence or you may feel threatened by my presence and you may be afraid of what I could become, right? You may be afraid that I'm going to hurt you or harm you or do anything like that. But I, in my internal dialogue that's happening within me, I'm afraid of what I won't become, right? I'm afraid that I won't fulfill my full potential. You're afraid I'm going to harm you. I'm afraid that I won't fulfill my full potential. And the common denominator in this equation is fear. We are both 
deathly afraid of something. And of course, there's a redemptive arc at the end of this 30-second ad, which is a story, a snapshot, right? A story that we tell ourselves in the culture. And it, it ends by Michael Jordan saying, I will become what I know I am. And then the tagline is become legendary. So that the idea is that despite the fears that we have, despite the vulner- feelings of vulnerabilities and feelings of absolute dread that we have, that we won't become what we want to become, we will still overcome and end up achieving our goals and fulfilling our potential. And that is the story that Nike is selling to you. And you love it because it's selling you belief in your own potential and the same thing I found with Beyonce right so like when Beyonce says who run the world girls and women around the world see themselves and their potential reflected in that content and they love her for it and they want to be her and they are pay so much respect and honor to her as a result of that right so this is the story these are the stories that we love and so i deduced from that that i essentially had to tell a story through the theory of enchantment that would train people and teach people how to fulfill their own potential but not to the end of some financial goal although that would be great or not to the end of some material goal right but ultimately to the end of having better relationships with ourselves and with others Uh, in society that was the goal that is the goal because we live unfortunately in an incredibly politically toxic environment where we're not getting along with each other excuse me where we're not getting along with each other we live in an environment where socially um, you have teenagers who are highly affected by some of the negative aspects of social media whose sense of self is totally warped because of false images they see on Instagram. And as a result, this is actually affecting the mental psyche and development of young people where you have, some would say, nearly an epidemic of young teenage girls committing suicide because of deleterious social media effects. We live in a society where, uh, that we, the way we're operating on fear right? And fear is super, super both deadly and contagious because when fear clashes with fear, you just want to defend yourself. You just want to protect yourself. And so you go in, claws come out, and that's when the fighting begins. So theory of enchantment is really a mindset and an attempt to sort of, um, to sort of challenge that and really think of other ways that we could learn to live with each other. Now, because pop culture is such a such a massive um, source text for me, I use pop culture to teach theory of enchantment, uh, and you know because of that, I want to talk about two pop culture, two things in the pop culture right now that are super super pressing and on people's mind, or maybe not, maybe they're not on all everyone's minds maybe they're not on your mind but i'm just going to tell you about stuff that i am i've been watching lately (laughs) i've been consuming lately um and uh and tell you what i think about them and how they sort of fit into this context of the theory of enchantment how the theory of enchantment sees and reimagines the world given this pop culture thing that happened so two things happened that i saw both on netflix one was the film when they see us which was about the wrongful convictions of the Central Park Five. Uh, And the other thing I saw was David Letterman's interview of Kanye West. Now, I want to talk about both of these. 
um, for a few minutes and sort of just like what they sort of made me feel like and what they left me with. Again, using the theory of enchantment as a model to sort of like shape the way I think about the world and a vision of society. So when they see us, it was really heartbreaking. And I just want to like go straight into it. You know, it was about these five kids who were wrongfully convicted of, uh, of a rape and brutal assault of a jogger in Central Park, I believe in the, uh, let me just fact check this because this is important that I get this. I believe it was in the 90s. It was like, no, I, th- I think it was like 89, actually. Let's see. Yeah, 1989. Um, so these teenagers were wrongfully convicted and like a bunch of them were underage, should not have been should not have been forced to give testimony in the first place because they were underage and you, you can't sort of like give testimony without like having a lawyer present. Um, and it's, I highly recommend watching it. It's very hard to watch. It's very difficult to watch. Um, but it's definitely worth watching just to get a sort of window into what happens when people are wrongfully convicted um, and how their lives can just totally be decimated. And it got me to thinking about how we as a society decide to approach the concept of justice. Now, a bit of context. During this time in the 1980s, um, New York was sort of like a cesspool of crime. And in particular, there happened to have been a serial killer who was actually convicted later for the crime in question, who had been serially raping women in that area. And I, I tell you this context because that means that the police department was very likely uh, felt pressure to convict fast and to convict early. And in their rush to judgment, actually ended up making things worse, compounded the situation, and if not ruined the lives of five innocent kids, certainly um, harmed their lives for a very long time. And it made me think to myself, you know, what is the role of how do we how do, what do we how do we think about justice when we think about justice? What does it mean to think about and contemplate justice within a theory of enchantment context? Is the way we think about justice punitive, meaning you do something and I punish you, right? Or is it is it is there another way to think about justice? Um, is there another way to think about how we can protect each other and defend each other from? crime and from harmful behavior while simultaneously making sure that our uses of protection do not go overboard and actually make the situation worse how can we begin to think in those terms and on those terms another the other thing that i thought about is what is the role that fear played and continues to play in the criminal justice system when some people see cops they are beset by fear And then when cops see other people, they too are beset by fear. Again, strip it down to its natural essence. It's individuals, human beings that we're talking about, not political abstractions, right? So what we're dealing with on a sort of, if we were to reduce it to its most common denominator, are human beings who confront each other in whatever context, for whatever reason, and are beset by fear. Now, it's obvious why that fear oftentimes affects people. If you're looking for, if you're a cop and you're looking for someone, you suspect someone, if there's been a spree of murders in an area or there's been a spree of rapes in an area, right? And you're looking for someone, 
you're afraid that this raping is going to happen again. You want to get this person off the streets. You are afraid, right? And so that fear is informing your investigate investigating. Your that fear is informing your investigation decisions. That's natural. Likewise, if you are a kid and you have been unfairly affected by cops over policing your neighborhood or over policing the community that you reside in then you are also going to be afraid of that cop he has the firepower he has the force to do you harm right so you're going to be afraid so there are reasons why both of these communities will see each other in fearful ways and the dilemma is how to break that fearful cycle because that's what's really informing. How can, in this case, it's black people, it's young black boys uh, in particular, how can young black men and cops stop viewing each other in this space of fear? How can they begin to see each other without being informed by that fear that braces them? It requires work on the part of both communities, right? One of the things I was thinking about, especially from a police perspective, which is a dilemma that one has to also overcome if you're a cop, is how can your job is to protect and serve, right? Now, it's a dilemma because if you want to protect and serve someone who is under threat from someone else who is threatening them, right? That's sort of like the normal interpretation of protect and serve, Right, but I actually think that protect and serve, those terms have to be deeper. I think that if you are a cop and your mission is to protect and serve, you actually have to protect and serve all parties in a situation. And what that means, that doesn't mean, you know, don't arrest someone for doing bad behavior. But even as you arrest someone or suspect, for, that is a person who is suspected of doing bad behavior, you still have to protect and serve the dignity and integrity of that person, right? That's a totally different way of viewing the words protect and serve, right? Um, that means that when, even when you are arresting someone, and yes, you're putting your life on the line, you feel threatened, they may have a weapon, whatever, but even when you do that, this is, this is what it means to wear the badge. You actually have to protect and serve that person that you are arresting. You have to protect and serve all members of society, right? Um, and that's hard. That's a, that's a difficult thing to do. And it requires a reimagining of what society can be and what society can look like. I think it also requires a reimagining of the purpose of jails in the first place. Should jails simply be used to house people, in some cases indefinitely? Or should their primary use be to rehabilitate people back into society? Um, I have seen it said that that was the original use of jails. I don't know. I haven't done much research into that. But again, how can we try to, as individuals and as a society, break the cycle of fear which exists between communities? Because when fear clashes with fear, you get violence. And you oftentimes get unbridled violence, which leads to more fear and more fear, which leads to more violence. So there has to be a system in place, a training in place that gets people to reimagine one another, not as threats, but as fellow members of society who serve an important role and who are of worth, right? Right. 
And likewise, I'd say that in communities of color, you know, I'm a person of color. I, I live in a predominantly uh, com- a community of color. Um, we also have to retrain and reimagine. Um, we have to stop viewing police officers in a way that is informed by fear, despite previous experiences that we may have had with police officers, right? Because fear will inform the way we see them and then respond to them. And that will oftentimes lead to more fear. And then sometimes we have an absolute right to be afraid, right? But there are ways in which we can learn how to manage our emotions um, and learn how to sort of keep our heads about ourselves. Not because we're trying to um, ignore a sort of, not because we're trying to ignore when people um, go beyond what is within the law, not because we're trying to ignore when people over police, but because we want to model a certain way of existing within society that is not informed by fear. We're not doing it simply for other people and for the betterment of other relationships. We're also doing it for us. So it has to be a two-way street. It has to be both communities deciding for themselves on an individual level and on an institutional level, on a communal level, that we will no longer be afraid of each other. And we will try to see each other through a lens that is not marked by fear, but in an attempt, essentially, to reconcile ourselves to each other. So that was sort of what I've been thinking about, um, just like trying to trying to combat the punitive nature of punitive systems, which are based on fear and informed by fear. Of course, again, it takes like a radical reimagining of society to do that, and then the work which takes a lifetime to do that. So that was the first thing in pop culture that I saw um, that sort of piqued my interest. And the second thing I was watching was actually David Letterman's interview of Kanye West, which was pretty cool. Um, you know, Kanye West is one of those individuals who like, He's been in the news recently because of his whole Trump thing. He's also been in the news because he's been making music, thi- musical stuff, um, which I, I love the musical stuff. And he said something today, actually, about the whole Trump hat wearing thing, which I actually understood from the whole fear concept that I've been talking about, which I didn't realize that's where he was coming from. Um, so he said that there's... that. It always is a problem when society is informed by fear and you have Trump supporters who are wearing these MAGA hats who are, are or who are supportive of Trump who are totally afraid to say so. Um, and they're afraid for a good reason because there are other people who are obviously critical of Trump who will not only voice their criticism but will become physical with them, who will straight up like punch them in the face. Um, and... I couldn't tell from the interview if this is the only reason why he wore it. Um, it certainly doesn't. I, I think. Look, I think that like Kanye has to like think about the implications and like bringing awareness to the fact that society should not be informed by fear is not the only implication of wearing the hat. And I think he should probably take responsibility for the implications because he is an influencer. But at the same time, I take his point that if a society is informed by fear, it creates this really bad cycle and so what's in what's happening essentially is that the people who are wearing the trump hat are actually afraid or the people who support trump are afraid of the people who don't support trump 
And then the people who don't support Trump are actually, on some level, also afraid of the people who do support Trump um, because they're afraid that Trump's policies will negatively affect them personally. And they may very well do that. Uh, So they're afraid. And so as a result of fear, again, going back to fear, they punch them in the face, right? Um, And what people don't really realize this about the psychology of bullying is that that sort of self-perpetuating thing that bullying can become. Because when you bully another person, when you punch them in the face for their opinion, I think this was really Kanye's point, when you punch them in the face about their opinion, um, you actually, like raise the likelihood that they will be afraid and then if they're afraid and isolated they will double down and then they may actually become bullies themselves right and so isn't it fascinating Uh, as i'm saying this out loud i'm thinking about it isn't it fascinating like i personally think that trump is a bully but isn't it fascinating that there are people who support him who are being bullied right isn't it fascinating that it's like which came first, the chicken or the egg? There are bullies who are literally punching supporters in the face, and then the supporters are becoming even more uh, happy and more supportive of a bully, right? This is the fear life cycle, and it never ends unless someone decides to break it. On the other hand, if there was no fear in this equation, I think that Trump supporters and liberals would actually be much more likely to be able to have a conversation, a civil conversation, a conversation that started out where one could see the other as a fellow human being, as a fellow American, as, a, as someone who we very viscerally and passionately disagree, but still a fellow American, a fellow citizen, and so therefore a person, quite frankly, whom I love. Right, And if that was the starting point, if that was the basis for these conversations, how much more likely would it be that the liberal would be able to persuade the Trump supporter of his or her viewpoints, and quite frankly, vice versa? Because the starting point would not be to see each other from a place of fear, but as a human being full of the same antipathies, full of the same anxieties that I am beset by and I have to navigate in my everyday life if that was a starting point of a conversation then the conversation would be different and I appreciated what Kanye had to say about that and he sort of said in the end that it's reduced to an equation of fear versus love and I totally get that that is a theory of enchantment mantra completely it's like fear versus love are you being informed by fear or are you being informed by love I understand that and The difference, whichever one you choose, will show up in your life in totally different ways. And so I encourage you to think about that as you move forward into the weekend and the next week. um, And think about that first uh, principle that I told you. And think about how you can try to internalize that in in more and more ways. A little bit of housekeeping. I want to let you guys know that I actually released a uh, online curriculum, Theory of Enchantment online curriculum, which is the full curriculum. Um, so you, if you want to train in the Theory of Enchantment, uh, you can go to, I'll actually put the, uh, I will put the website on my Instagram. It's in my Instagram bio. 
Um, and I will also try to remember to put it in the info for this podcast episode, but it's theory-of-enchantment.teachable.com. Um, so the usual price of this curriculum is 750 bucks for a year's worth of access to all the materials. However, if you use the discount coupon Spike Cohen, uh, you get it gets reduced to $360 or 30 bucks a month for the full course. I used Spike Cohen because I was on his podcast a few days ago. So I'm giving out that discount in honor of him for having me on his podcast. So if any of you decide to enroll, feel free to leave me comments in the comment section. Tell me if you're liking it and tell me if I can uh, help you out, give you a bit of feedback and help you along the way. That makes the 11th episode of The Theory of Enchantment. And I really hope I got that number right because that would be awkward if I didn't. And I'm not really going to re-record this, re-record this if I didn't. So um, I hope you enjoy. I hope you got a little bit more out of it. And I really have fun just on the mic, just like spitting some info and some ideas that were on my head. And I hope it got you thinking in the same way that it got me thinking. Have a great weekend, guys. So today's quote of the day comes from an incredible book by John O'Donohue called To Bless the Space Between Us, A Book of Blessings. The name of this poem is For Light. Light cannot see inside things. That is what the dark is for. Minding the interior, nurturing the draw of growth through places where death in its own way turns into life. In the glare of neon times, let our eyes not be worn by surfaces that shine with hunger made attractive. That our thoughts may be true light, finding their way into words which have the weight of shadow to hold the layers of truth. That we never place our trust in minds claimed by empty light, where one-sided certainties are driven by false desire. When we look into the heart, May our eyes have the kindness and reverence of candlelight, that the searching of our minds be equal to the oblique, crevices and corners where the mystery continues to dwell, glimmering in fugitive light when we are confined inside the dark house of suffering that moonlight might find a window. When we become false and lost, that the severe noon light would cast our shadow clear. When we love, that dawn light would lighten our feet upon the waters. As we grow old, that twilight would illuminate treasure in the fields of memory. And when we come to search for God, let us first be robed in night. Put on the mind of morning to feel the rush of light. Spread slowly inside the color and stillness of a found world. I'm not sure if 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 I'